There we go. So we're back from our break. Um, here still on <coughs> Friday, Friday evening. Anyway, so we continue. We t- we continue here with a discussion on on on, on step one, uh, which of course says we admitted would <coughs> we admitted we were powerless over lust, that our lives had became unmanageable, or become unmanageable. So will someone please read um, Lust on page 40 and 41 um, of the white book. Let's go out to that. Um, I think, Kevin, how much do we want them to read on that? The, the entire section on Lust. Okay, so I need somebody to... Josh, off. Hey, Josh. Josh. Hey, Josh. Did you see the whole section on Lust? Yep. Okay. Lust. Why in step one do we say we are powerless over lust instead of sex? Is not some form of sex what we are addicted to? Yes, we answer, but our problem is not simply sex. Just as in compulsive overeating, the problem is not simply food. Eating and sex are natural functions. The real problem in both of these addictions seems to be what we call lust. An attitude demanding that a natural instinct serve unnatural desires. We try to use food or sex to reduce isolation, loneliness, insecurity, fear, tension, or to cover our our emotions, make us feel alive, help us escape, or satisfy our God hunger, we create an unnatural appetite that misuses and abuses the natural instinct. It is not only more intense than the natural, but becomes something totally different. Eating and sex enter a different dimension. They possess an unnatural uh, spiritual component. The addiction is thus um, to lust not merely to the substance or physical act. Lust, the attitude itself, becomes a controlling factor in the addiction. This may be why people exhibit lust in more than one area. Often those of us addicted to substances or forms of behavior discover we are also addicted to negative attitudes and emotions. I remember that when I came off lust, alcohol, and tranquilizers, resentment burst forth like a damned up volcano. I remember thinking that controlling lust must be like trying to control a piece of jello. You press it here and it plunges out there, or like trying to route a gopher. You plug in one tunnel only to have the beast go to work in another. People may not be allergic to food and sex in the sense that some people are allergic to pollen, strawberries, or cats, but we do become allergic to lust for food and sex. Misusing the natural instinct of sex for an unnatural end over and over again increasingly sensitizes us to the triggers of that association until a simple thought or look elicits the compulsion. For the sexaholic, lust is toxic. This is why in recovery, the real problem is spiritual and not merely physical. This is why change of attitude is so crucial. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. So I'd like to like you to note a few uh, key words in this reading. Um, what are un- they, the italicized ones? Well, oh, well, there's some of those, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Unnatural desires, unnatural appetite, um, allergy. Lust is toxic. We're, we're going we're gonna to see some of these words or, or similar words um, as we uh, go on here. Um, so now we're in, we're in the big book. We're going to uh, turn to the doctor's opinion, um, Roman numeral uh, 27 in the fourth edition, XXVII. Oh, not really. It's a couple pages in yeah. to the doctor's opinion. 47? 
XXVII. Five, six, seven, yes. Twenty-seven. No, ten. X is ten, or is it twenty? X is ten. So twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. And then B is fifty, so it's. No, B is five. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> we should probably write out the Roman numeral definitions, yeah. <laughs> shouldn't we, on the wall somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> so, so this book is is our this chapter is titled "The Doctor's Opinion." That this is um. um <coughs> Uh, th these are two letters um, that were written by Dr. Silkworth, um, who was the doctor that, that treated uh, Bill Wilson um, and, and became um, somewhat of a, um, a friend and a, an advisor to, to Bill. Um, uh, Dr. Silkworth was considered um, an, an expert or a specialist in, in um, alcoholism at a time when uh, when alcoholism really wasn't understood. Um, so anyway, he in this second letter, uh, and these are kind of like um, letters of recommendation, um, but in his second letter, um, Dr. Silkworth describes um, <coughs> <coughs> describes in, in, in some detail the nature of, um, of alcoholism. Um, and I'm just going to kind of skip through here uh, to some important parts. I'm not going to read the whole letter, but about halfway down the page, he says, We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its al application presented difficulties beyond our comprehension. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. So he's kind of admitting here that, that doctors don't really have a, a very good grasp on, on, um, on this uh, alcoholic uh, alcoholism concept. Um, <coughs> So turning over to the next page, uh, 28, Roman numeral, XXVIII. I see why uh, Roman numerals never really caught on. I mean, right on. Yeah, they are, they are troublesome. We, see, we sure do like them for the Super Bowl, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, first we'll paragraph here. Um, the doctor says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Um, so I want you to keep in mind here, he's talking about alcohol, but every time you uh, see the word alcohol, kind of mentally replace it with the word lust and, and see if that fits. Um, we're, we're looking for we're looking for uh, again um, to uh, to establish that this program of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, can work um, for sexaholism as well. 
So he, he talks about an allergy and its phenomenon of craving. Um, I've written in my white book um, near the words unnatural appetite, which I pointed out, the word craving. <coughs> um, skipping to the bottom of that page, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. Yeah, exactly. And and to that to that end, you know, <clears throat> I've been using this big book for a while. I had to even get it rebound. Um, over on that previous page, um, I wrote in the margins all the way around the text <clears throat> these words: <clears throat> restless, irritable, and discontent equals means I must have relief which turns on craving which always means a spree which always brings shame guilt and remorse this leads then to res to resolve which leads always to restless irritable and discontent which means I must have relief which turns on craving. You see what I'm doing? That's the cycle of addiction for me. You know, I know about allergic to pollen. I can't keep it in my nose from running to save my... You know, I just can't. Yeah, I know what it was like. The eyes watered. The eyes were, you know, itchy. It was just awful. My body was responding. Um, why? Because I was allergic. Couldn't help it. That's... Lust is like that in my psyche. Emotionally and spiritually, I'm allergic to lust. I heard a, a, one of my favorite circuit speaker alcoholics talk about it. A guy by the name of Scott Redman. I, I was completely immersed in self and taking myself way too seriously early in recovery, even though I was doing a bunch of step work and making progress. Finally, Will said, you got to lighten up, man. Here, you can listen to this guy. So I listened to Scott Redman, and he lightened me up. And And he says... You know, they talk about it in the doctor's opinion. They say it's like, you know, there's an allergy. He says, what's this allergy like? Well, I don't know what you're like, but here's what it's like for me. You know, when I, I get that short, stout glass with that little bit of brown liquid in the bottom of it, and he says, I bring that to my lips. It goes across my lips. It gets on my tongue and goes down my throat and goes boom. He says, other people, it doesn't go boom. It goes boom inside me. And you're going to find me three days later somewhere I maybe have never even been. I won't have any idea how I got there if I'm still alive. One drink is too many. A thousand is not enough. 
That's how I drink. That's why I'm alcoholic. I have the allergy that they talk about in the doctor's opinion. So when you introduce alcohol into my body, it does something different than the other guy who can drink and stop. I don't know why, but it's the way it works for me. And if you do lust like that, if you log on and see enough of the wrong pictures only to find yourself at 7 p.m. <laughs> thinking, oh my God, you're probably going to be still up at 5 a.m. hunting for more if you do lust like I used to do lust. Why? Because I can't stop. No more than Scott can keep that drink from going boom can I stop the, the cycle of spree and remorse that lust turns on inside of my psyche somewhere. And I'll never understand it. I don't need to understand it, though. That's the point, guys. This isn't an education on understanding addiction. This is an education on how to have rest, how to have recovery, how to become recovered. Nowhere will anyone say you're going to understand it. Nobody understands it. We know what helps us, though, and that's what we're talking about this weekend. Yeah, so as Bob pointed out there, the, the, um, this is the addictive cycle. Um, and, and Dr. Silkworth um, identified it. <clears throat> and he talks about this psychic change stuff. And I thought, well, that shouldn't be too hard. I'm already a psychotic. <laughs> That's <laughs> what not kind of what he meant, Bob. No, I know. I, I was taking it out of context. I said, look why I should never sponsor myself, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um Let's learn a little bit more about this. Turn to page 21. <coughs> it's not Roman numeral 21. No, no, no. Oh, Real <laughs> Arabic numeral 21. In the big book. Okay. In, in uh, There is a solution. <coughs> um, which is close to the title of our weekend. Imagine that. We have a solution. I guess we didn't look far enough yeah. into the text for, us, for a name for this thing, did we? Yeah. <laughs> so... What we just read in the doctor's opinion was Dr. Silkworth um, describing um, describing the uh, the cycle. What we're reading here on page 21 is is <coughs> uh, Bill W. describing um, the alcoholic. Uh, first full paragraph on 21. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Um, flipping over to page 22, um, near the top. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative which, which, with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. Um, skipping a paragraph, uh, why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle, with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower 
that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters. Hmm. <clears throat> um, skipping yet another paragraph down at the bottom of page 22. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol whatever into his system, something happens. There we go. Both in the bodily and mental sense. Boom. Which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Uh -huh. uh -oh. So, <coughs> he's, um, we've described the alcoholic here. You know, can, can you relate to this with lust. Once I take, um, uh, I, I'm equally positive that once I take any lust, whatever, into my system, something happens. Something Both in the happens. bodily and mental sense. I mean, the bodily, yeah. <coughs> you know, um, that that feeling of excitement. You know, that's not just mental. Um, heartbeat, uh, heart rate increases. Temperature probably goes up. You know, <coughs> there there are some bodily um, uh, reactions to lust. And mental. Definitely some, some mental things going on. Yeah, and going back to what I was saying earlier about spiritual, emotional, and physical. Um, and, and all I had ever concerned myself with was a physical... Um, so I had a physical solution for everything. If I had a bad day, I had a physical solution. If I had a good day, I had a physical solution. If I had a really <laughs> normal, average day, all I had was a physical solution. And and all I ever did, I stayed, you know, out of the three categories, only in the one. And it just doesn't work when you're an adult. It doesn't work. And I remember my sponsor, Will, coming in the meeting early on and saying, you "Guys, got to have a solution here because all I got for life is lust, and I got to be in life." And and I need I need I need a I need a different solution. This is gonna kill me. You know, my problem isn't with lust; it's with life. Because I'm living life. I got a job. I'm married. I got things I got to do. And all I got for life is lost. And it ain't working. And I need a solution. I need a different plan. And I just don't have one. I hope you guys got a solution, or I'm gonna die. Because when I go back out there, it ain't just going to be lust. It's going to be drugs and it's going to be alcohol. And I'm going to die. And he was right. Good news is, is he never went back out there. And so far as we know, he's probably going to die sober. That's what we're praying for anyway. So, yeah, that's just how serious this is. And and if you don't get to die, they'll th they'll catch you and throw you in prison. That's where a lot of us go. You don't believe that. Go go to a few prison meetings if you get a chance. It doesn't always, We don't get a chance all the time. I'll talk about that later, but go ahead, Kevin. Talk to some people in the program who've had the uh, FBI show up at their doorstep. Oh, that's a special treat. Confiscate all their computers. That's got to be a special treat. That's where I was headed. I know, right? <coughs>
it's still a possibility for all of us. Yeah. And uh, because once I take that first drink of lust, once I start surfing, I can't stop. I don't know where it's going to go, and I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know who's watching now. I have no control over that. Right. So if you get no other takeaway out of this weekend, just know that, anyway, we should not probably uh, get too far off the yep. reservation here. So <laughs> He's looking for the page. Yeah. <laughs> so allergy equals craving. Craving equals allergy. I love this, you know, because I... Like I said, I have I not they don't they're not active so much anymore. But I know what it's like to live with allergies. And when you talk to me about lust being an allergy, I get it. See, that's that's when I start to have a solution. Is if you talk to me in terms when I get it. You know, telling me that the AA Big Book is the service manual. You know, I'm in the car repair business for my life. That's my career. You want to tell me where the service manual is? I'm going to show you how to fix something. You know, that's that's how I roll. So. That's what's so cool about this. Talk to me about lust being an allergy. I'm listening because I resemble that remark. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, craving um, more, better, different. Oh, that never. That more, better, different. That is craving. The theme and, park and of lust. I want to yeah. ride every ride, and then yeah. I'm gonna wait for you to build more rides. <laughs> and I'm gonna ride every ride. And <laughs> right? Yeah. There yeah. I am puking on the ride. Then I'm gonna the ride them backwards. Right. <laughs> I know. Oh man, craving that 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 was uh, that talk about unmanageability. Yeah. So here's the addictive cycle. It, it was outlined by Dr. Silkworth. Um, last year we drew it. We actually drew it out on a on a, a, a large pad. Um, you'll have to kind of imagine this yourself, or or draw it out yourself on, on a piece of paper. Starts off with restless, irritable discontent. We call it the Reds, restless, irritable discontent. And when I'm restless, irritable discontent, what do I need? I gotta have relief. I know how to get relief. Um, once I get that relief, I get a craving for more. Why? Because I'm allergic. Uh, get the craving, I go on a spree. And I emerge from the other side of the spree remorseful with shame and guilt. And that just makes me restless, irritable, and discontent. And we start all over again. I like what you did there, Bob, writing that around the around the edge of the page so you had to turn the book when you're when you're reading it. That that's really um that's really a powerful uh, uh, visual uh, representation of, of the cycle. So what happens when we get in this when we get in this cycle? <coughs> um, turn to page XXX in the fourth edition. As a matter of fact, it is Neil, and gratefully we're in recovery material, so you get a buy today. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, by the way, thank you. Uh, <coughs> oh, okay, gosh. Um, right at the top, these men were not drinking to escape. 
they were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. This is just continuing with the, with more exposition on the cycle. Um, but uh, continuing, there are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. So they bothered to write that down. Oh. I wonder why. You know, think think about that. What that that's a that's a really sobering thought. That's a tribute to those who died. Yeah. What is a supreme sacrifice? Suicide. Absolutely. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. It's so sick of myself. I, I'm, I'm sick of being sick. I'm tired of fighting. I'm, I'm, you know, I might as well just not be here. I, I sponsor a guy that has attempted suicide twice, and he had been arrested the second time and was um, ended up after he had gotten out of the police station and whatnot, <clears throat> walking back to where he was living. They confiscated his car, and he had called the guy and left a message, and he was here. He was that person. Um, he was the one, um, also a recovering alcoholic, um, that caused him to decide to make the supreme sacrifice. And he he, is, he was walking across the lane to get out into traffic. Uh, his phone rang. And he took the call instead of stepping in front of the truck. And... He wasn't arrested because he was drunk. He was arrested because he'd uh, solicited a prostitute. So, you know, every time I hear about a suicide, I wonder. You know? So don't worry, guys. I just want you to know right now that this thing wants everything you got. And it wants every one of you is everything you got. You don't get to miss this part. If you're a sexaholic of the type like I am, or even close, or even worse, sexaholism wants your job, it wants your family, it wants your money, it wants your security, and it wants you dead in a most humiliating, in a most <laughs> publicly infuriating way. It wants to not just kill you, it wants to kill your legacy. And it will not stop. It's going to come after you, and it will last longer than you will. It will kick your ass, it will throw you out in the street and kill you dead. But don't worry, we have a solution. And I know that sounds flippant, but I said that to get your attention, because it doesn't have to happen like this. You don't have to be that statistic. If you'll do a few things that are set out before us, right? Yep. And, and notice um, this paragraph says nothing about alcohol. Oh, and by the way, that guy that was going to step in traffic, he's one of our most concrete, solid members right now. He is absolutely my, one of my go-to people in life. So, 
And he just did the same stuff we're talking about here. Go ahead. Yeah. So I want to read that paragraph one more time because uh, to drive home the point, this, this paragraph does not contain the word alcohol. It's about craving. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. That there sealed the deal for me. Yeah, I got my attention with, now, with, don't you? Yeah, I mean, have I experienced craving? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, at this point, uh, we're running. We're running pretty late, so I don't. I really, I really want to. This is important, though. <coughs> I'm going to read. Um, this is this is quite a bit of reading, and <coughs> um, I suppose we could just have you read it on your own, but uh, it won't take that much longer for me to just read it for you. First part of Bill's story. So I'm starting in chapter one, um, and. Uh, yeah, this is important. Yeah. Someone someone do me a favor and and count the number of times that Bill quits. Um chapter 1, Bill's story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we were we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a doggerel on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good, good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Twenty-two and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagined, would place me at the head of vast enterprises which I would manage with the utmost assurance. I took a night law course and obtained employment as investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I had proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. <laughs> oh, you think? We had long <laughs> talks. I'm sure you did. Oh, I love it. Long talks. When I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk. No, that's a that the famous most alcoholic line, isn't it? Yeah. 
that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. Oh my gosh. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Hmm. You get that? You know, this is this is 1939 writing, and and we aren't even in World War II yet. It's just the the style of writing is just different than modern writing. But if you if you read into this carefully, <coughs> um, it's it's really quite humorous. Bill is Bill is. Um, I, I'm going to read that again because it's. it's to me, it's so funny. I commenced to forge the weapon that would all but cut me through, that would turn in its flight like a boomerang <laughs> and all but cut me to ribbons. Can you say, bite me in the ass? Right. <laughs> exactly. <coughs> Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather popular. Tiny stocks. Yeah. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. Oh boy. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. Yeah, not the least of which is that he was consulting with an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle. The sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success at speculation, so we had a little money, but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. Uh -oh. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. Interesting little comment to just toss in there. Yeah. There's a few more. Uh, there was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and shattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair weather friends. Yeah, so Bob made a comment about, uh, in interesting comment about thrown in here about drink was taking an important exhilarating part of my life. One little sentence after all these paragraphs, but um, it really shows to me how, how uh, delusional Bill was. Pretty impressed with himself too, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, he's going on, you know, I, I had these great successes and, and um, you know, I was doing great. I had arrived and, oh, by the way, drink was taking an important part. You know, Casual comment. Yeah, on casual the side. comment. But yet he goes on to say, <coughs> my drinking assumed more serious proportions. 
continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. Ooh. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What happened to the great successes? <laughs> yeah. Well, is the drinking his drinking assumed more se- serious proportions? Okay. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness. Uh-oh. <laughs> kept me out of those scrapes. Yeah, <laughs> too drunk to... All right, what's well, yeah. going on? <laughs> oh, and by the way, I write in the margin right at this point in the book, complete unmanageability. Evidently not. There's going to be more. <laughs> well, maybe I hit that a little early. <laughs> in 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. My wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Yeah, so it was golf as in the game, not as in the place. Yes. Golf and with an O, not a U. Yeah, golf with an O, and he's seemingly still very impressed with himself. Yeah. Do y'all know who uh, Walter Hagen is? Walter well, Hagen was the he was like Jack Nicholas of the day. Absolutely. He, he was the golf Or shall guy. we say the... Tiger Woods of the day, yeah, or yeah, the, or the Keith Mickelson so, of the day. So, Bill has these these uh, these ideas that he's going to overtake Walter Hagen in in his little uh, uh, golf hobby here. But how did it go, Kevin? That will liquor caught up with me. Oh, caught <laughs> but, up with him? Yeah, liquor caught up with <laughs> me much faster than I came up behind Walter. Right, <laughs> which means liquor went with him. It didn't catch him at all. <laughs> I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to carry him about, uh, to carry him around the exclusive course. Curry, carom, C A R O M. Oh, C thirty nine. That's right. Get your nineteen thirty nine Webster's out. It was fun to carry him around the exclusive course, which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with, assume, with amused skepticism. Hmm. Abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of the tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. <laughs> Good die, a different way. <laughs> My friends had dropped several millions since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. So hold on a second. As I drank, the old fierce self-determination came back. Right? That's what he said, isn't it? So he was drinking for effect. And what he thought the effect was is that he was getting courage from being drunk. Okay. Now, why did you lust? Did you lust for effect? 
Were you medicating in your lust like Bill medicated drinking? I don't know about you, but I did. Go ahead. Next morning I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. <laughs> Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again. And, it my went generous, and my generous friend had to <laughs> let me go. This time we stayed broke. Oh no. We went to live with my wife's parents. Oh, can you think of a worse right? punishment? You know, <laughs> you could have just broke the long gone to jail, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, who knows? That his wife's been a good parents, his mother and father-in-law. Oh, nice. <coughs> I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Why do you think he got in that brawl? Yeah, good question. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. Boy, what stamina. For five years. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Alcohol is now the number one priority. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endless, endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin, followed by half a dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. So he calmed down with more beers and a half a bottle of gin. More beers than I can even drink in a day. And a half a, bo half a bottle of gin. That, it, that's what got him back to even. Do you think we got a problem? I don't know. What do you think? Nevertheless, Nevertheless he I still thought I could control the situation. Oh, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Imagine that. <laughs> Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and the chance vanished. Yep. Getting drunk at all the wrong times. I woke up. This had to be stopped. Uh, I think he's thinking about quitting. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. Wow. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed, and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. 
I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. Ooh, quit again, did he? But I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. How many of you have gotten to that point where you get a little bit of sobriety and you get cocksure? Well, the word he uses here is cocksureness. You get content. You get arrogant. Start getting impressed with yourself. Wow, I got some sobriety. I can do this. I can do this. Bam. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. <coughs> I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. It was half a dozen before. And now I know, now dozen. we're at 12. We're at a full 12-pack. And mm. it isn't even daylight yet. Yeah. My... <laughs> My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms. For mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Anybody try a geographical cure? Yep, gotta get away. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heady, heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. Think about that. So this guy is probably 6'1", I think Bill was. I don't know. 40 pounds underweight for anybody of, of even near average build is a lot. You know, I saw pictures of Bill Wilson. Um, you can find him on, on Google, and, and they're pictures of him many years sober. And, and he looks like about a 6-foot tall character with a relatively medium build. He's not at all overweight, let alone obese. So he's healthy in these, in these quite healthy um, in, in these pictures. So at 40 pounds underweight, he was probably looking really gaunt. Yeah. My brother-in-law is a physician and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, 
I had been seriously ill, bodily and mentally. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to co combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, uh -oh. I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Really? But it was not. Oh, For the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time I returned to the hospital. This was the finish. The, cer the certain it seemed, the curtain it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. So stop for a second here. Wet brain. When alcoholics talk about wet brain, basically what you, they tell me, what you do to yourself is you turn yourself into a vegetable. You drink and you've so frightfully abused your body's ability to endure the in, the excessive intake of alcohol that your brain just basically goes into vegetable mode. And so you're in a bed and some you have to be attended to for simply every single bodily function. You're in, in you're totally incoherent. You know no one, but yet you're still alive. That sounds like fun, huh? <laughs> so this is where he's gotten to himself, is, is to yep. the point where he's close to this. Yep. Basically a vegetable. It's yep. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount of obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quick sand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. It's the only normal life now. <clears throat> Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, 1934, I was off again. <coughs> Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. He's kind of foreshadowing what's to come here. He hasn't found this yet, but, but he's giving us... He's giving us a little hope in his story. He's getting hard to read. I'm glad he did that. 
Yeah. <laughs> Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. And I'm going to end that reading there. We're going to um, uh, finish that a little bit later. Um, so, did you pursue lust the way Bill pursued booze? Were you as hopeless as Bill? So Bill was pretty clear about how he couldn't keep the drinking events from happening. Um, did any of you ever find any amount of control over your ability to, to stop lust from just running your life? Or do you relate kind of with what Bill's talking about? You know what I'm saying? And this is this is why Kevin and I are spending some time with this this particular story because yes, it's about an alcoholic, and no, I'm personally not an alcoholic. I know some members of SA are alcoholics, so they can relate their alcohol problem to this. But we're at an SA retreat, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sexaholic of the type that cannot control the amount of lust I take in under most any circumstances if I begin to take in lust especially bad if I begin to take in any amount of lust thinking I'm going to be okay. So, four times. Four, four times. Um, if you read the rest of the chapter, there's there's at least a couple more times um, that, that he um, goes on a bender. <coughs> um, and I'm, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter now. We're running really late. There's good news, though. If you were as hopeless as Bill... Uh, if you can relate even a little bit with his story. Um, on page 17, there is a solution. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just, who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. Back to that recovered word again, aren't we? They have solved the drink problem. Ooh, and now they're, it's recovered because they solved it. That's right. So there's there's hope. You could be as hopeless as Bill, but even Bill wasn't wasn't hopeless. He recovered, solved the drink problem. Um, so there's some more more reading we could do. Um, Uh, page 20, if you are an alcoholic or a sexaholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We shall tell you what we have done. Um, <clears throat> So there's there's a solution. Let's go to page 25. There is a solution, says in italics. Almost none of us liked the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, 
the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for its successful consummation. He's kind of giving us a little uh, hint of what's going to come and saying, there's a solution here, you're not going to like it. Oh, and he also <laughs> uses the word requires, not suggests. Yeah, actually, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, requires for its successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. Kit um, of tools. Yeah. So, um, at the bottom uh, of that page, if you are as seriously alcoholic or sexaholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. No easier, softer way. Mm -hmm. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual health. So, you have a choice. The next sentence is really important, too. It does say, then, this we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. Crucial. I felt a lot of pain a bunch of different times over the same exact kinds of sprees and remorses until I finally got to a point where I wanted help. Literally wanted help. And combined that with a willingness to take it. There's a big difference between living with pain and wanting help. They're separate things, guys. And then wanting help is only wanting help. But if you're not willing to do what they're asking you to do, you're still just wanting. And wanting keeps me in the cycle. Because it means i got to have a solution now, because wanting ain't good enough. And my solution has only ever been lost, and so it starts the craving, right? I go right back around. The, I ride that merry-go-round around again until I puke. Because I can't get off of it. So it's wanting and willing is crucial here. That is the that's the key through which we have got a solution. But we have to have the want and the willingness. But okay. um, so just the last bit that I want to read here um, on page 26 is a story about um, a guy named Roland. <coughs> <coughs> and um, I'll read this and then uh, we'll go through what, what step one action is um, but this kind, of, this kind of summarizes what the solution is what, what you know we ask the question what do I have to do this kind of answers that question 
A certain American businessman had ability. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He was a drunk. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Yoon, who prescribed for him. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to the doctor, whom he admired, and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was a great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with this doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where the state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I am employed I employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he reflected that, after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, which, as we have already told you, made him a free man. So, um, so the doctor says here, basically, you, you need a vital spiritual experience. Dr. Silkworth talked about a complete psychic change. 
We also read about attitude, change in attitude. Those are all the same thing. Psychic change, change in attitude, spiritual experience. Um, this is a spiritual program. This, the, the, um, the acceptance of a higher power of God to solve your problem is that that's the solution. <clears throat> yep, fundamental change in attitude. Some call it a paradigm shift. Um, like it's you know psychic change, you know, and, and it's it's the kind of stuff that you know happens with my connection to a power greater than myself. This isn't something I can just make happen for myself. That's why we need this program. Yep. Um, just a note about uh, so their religious beliefs do not equal spiritual experience. We're going to talk a little bit more tomorrow in step two about uh, uh, spiritual experience. Um, so we have this disease it's hopeless. There's 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 this hopeless cycle um, that, that Dr. Silkworth explains, but there's a solution. Um, this, the solution is in uh, having a, a spiritual experience, a complete psychic change. Um, there are no specific instructions in the Big Book uh, for step one or step two. Um, In fact, we, we get to the real instructions. Well, there's there's some instructions for step three. <coughs> um, but in SA, we've, we've kind of, um, we have developed this um, this way of working, working steps that, that seems to work. And um, working step one, um, one way to do it um, that I have found very effective is very simple. Um, take a spiral notebook or, or some sort of notebook that you can open uh, opposing pages on. My notebook here? So you open open to uh, some opposing pages, and on the left page, right at the top, the word powerlessness. Powerless. Yeah, powerless, powerlessness, whatever right. you want. And on the right page, right, unmanageability. Let me let me read about what we've got under powerlessness and unmanageability in here for you guys so yeah. you can get a listen to this. So step one action, make a list of examples of your powerlessness over lust. And it goes on to say, missing important events so you could act out, placing yourself and others at risk of physical harm, arrest, or disease, sex with persons you don't even like, Engaging in activities that disgust, that disgusted and overwhelmed you with shame. Do not overlook the times that lust interfered with a precious relationship, even though that person was not the subject of your lust, at, such as possibly acting out with my sister's best friend, harm my relationship with my sister, for instance. Um, trying to hold a conversation with a friend while being consumed with lust for a person across the room. Um, 
so you're completely distracted by somebody else and yet you're trying to remain engaged and it's just obvious and useless. Um, yeah. so these, that's are, these are just some examples. Some of simple of examples, things. yep. I mean, you'll have your own. Um, <coughs> wrecking a car because you weren't paying attention. Oh, uh, just, uh, <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Raising your hand on that one? Sorry, I am. Um, on my list, powerlessness. Um, driving very late at night on a dark, twisty road. Um, masturbating while driving. Yep, that's pretty you know crazy. Something? That's crazy. That's crazy. It's so once once you get that stuff listed out, just bullet items, you know, and you, then it goes on to say make another list, you know, like Kevin showed you on the other page, page. of the unmanageability in your life, which were the consequences, the stuff that happened because of the powerlessness, okay? Because that's what step one is. My life, I am powerless over lust, and as a result, we have unmanageability. Now, if you're not powerless over lust, you haven't got any unmanageability because of it, okay? This is one of the first ways we figure out if you really are a sex addict or not, right? So here we go. It says, consequences of my addiction. Sometimes you can identify a direct consequence of an episode <clears throat> on the first list and place it on the second. However, there will be other consequences which are the cumulative result of years of pursuing lust. Areas to search for consequences include damaged relationships with family, lost friendships, missed opportunities in your career, legal scrapes, financial costs, time wasted. Now, how much money did you guys spend on lust? All right, I'll stop. Um, <laughs> it's a lot, right? If you were like me, it was a lot. Uh, so the time wasted in the pursuit of lust, the, I'll never get that back. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm bummed. I have to be careful. I don't think about that too long. Time wasted in the pursuit of lust, and so on. So try to look at as many areas of your life as possible where your addiction has caused difficulty. The result will not be pretty. And then once you have written these lists, sit down with your sponsor to review them. Look for where you seem to be enjoying the shock value rather than seeing the powerlessness and unmanageability. You know, I see your braggadociousness if you're grandiose like me is going to come out when you're doing the list. You know, there are all these women I did, you know. Man, just like, it's almost, it's hard to even say that now. It's so, so remorseful about it, looking at it now, right? But that's the kind of stuff I would do. So it says, look for where you seem to be enjoying the shock value rather than seeing the powerlessness and unmanageability. Word the examples in a way that tells the truth without embellishment or drama and respects the feelings of the group members who will hear your presentation of your first step. Now, some meetings have a guy give the first step presentation at the meeting. And I've been to some of those that have been read and worked with a sponsor on, and I've been to some that haven't. The ones that haven't are, oh man, those can be difficult. Um, I personally am not a sponsor that needs to have a guy I sponsor give his first step in the meeting. We could do it. Well, I don't mind doing it. But he's not going to do it until he gives it to me. Um, he's too close to the forest for the sake of the trees. He was just like me. I was too close to the forest for the sake of the trees. I was going to have stuff I was telling tell you about that I did in my story that, that was going to trigger people. And, you know, and that was pointed out to me. I didn't see it. 
I needed it pointed out. That's all. We're just trying to keep, you know, folks from getting, you know, taken into a bad part of town just because they had to listen to me and my bullshit, right? Or the bullshit that happened to me. Uh, the realities, the truth that happened to me, really. You know, so I can say that without having to say it that way. And that's the point. And, some, and I'll be honest with you, I needed a sponsor to point that out. So, yeah, I gave mine in a meeting. But I also gave mine privately later to the other sponsors. And it works just as good that way, too. So I don't have a get-off on which way you should go. But if you're going to give it in public, it ought to be something that's given to somebody else with a lot of recovery who can help you say, yeah, let's tune this up, let's change that, you're good. You know, I'm not going to ask you to think, take things out unless what, what it is is just really incriminating or possibly legal and you haven't been prosecuted for it. Um, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't ever need to go out there. But anyway, going on, it says you make the list. So you got the two pages, you filled it out. So it goes on to say the reduction of shame, fear, and isolation is one of the greatest benefits of the first step. Another is that you <clears throat> is that if you are thorough in this effort, you will have written evidence of the nature and severity of your condition. You will begin to see the truth about yourself and your addiction. And I would be willing to bet you that if, if you've never done a first step before, that that would be brand new for you. That got my attention. It wasn't until then I realized the heinous nature of some of the things I had done as a sexaholic. Because I never thought about it before until then. And, and that's really the <clears throat> the purpose of the step one exercise, not not so much to to give it publicly or, or to give it at a meeting, um, but to, uh, to it's an inventory. That's right. Something you get down on paper so that you can look at it honestly, and and um, uh, and, and see, you know. The, the full extent of, of your powerlessness and unmanageability. <clears throat> so, like I said, it's an inventory. You, you don't need to list every single instance of doing X. You know, when I if you take an inventory at a grocery store, you don't go can of peas, can of peas, can of peas, can of peas. Can you you go? I got 20 can of peas, right? Um, <clears throat> So, you know, just list, list down examples of your powerlessness. You know, if, if it was something that, that was repetitive, make, you know, make a note of that, that it was uh, uh, repetitive or compulsive or, or um, you know, um, chronic. Um, uh, same thing with unmanageability. Um, just list the ways that your, your life is unmanageable. Usually, it will be as a result of something on your powerlessness list, but it, it, it could be other things as well. Um. <clears throat> so that that's really the the gist of it right now, and and I think at this point we want to start to wrap it up. But the other thing I want to tell you right now, while I got you all here, and this has been long, is that we are not going to talk for the next 77 hours about each step. Okay. This first night is a bit rough because it goes kind of long and it feels like it's really... No. So by midday tomorrow, we will have gotten through by lunch um, step four. And by um, between lunch and dinner, we'll have covered the thoroughness of step four and five, which is really where the rubber meets the road in recovery. And by the end of the day, 
we're going to be all the way to step 10. And that's just tomorrow. So 11 and 12 are on Sunday. So keep in mind, once we get this big ball rolling, it rolls pretty good. And I just want to help you guys know that now because you're probably sitting there thinking, Oh, my God. <laughs> and I know Danny is. But <laughs> I have meetings once a week with these guys, too. Do I have to do this? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, and, I just want you to know that. Yeah. And step one was a lot about the problem. I and mean, we talked about the solution in there a little bit. But yep. uh, from here on out, it's, it's solution. Solution, baby. We have a solution. We're going to tell you about it. Thanks for being patient. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.